Thank you very much, John. Uh, and uh, I also thank you for having a panel on this issue. I was at a two-day conference recently in which there was no panel on this issue, which doesn't mean that uh, the organizers aren't concerned about it. It only means that there are issues that are of such uh, a more immediate uh, threat and concern to them that they, they um, need to deal with that. But it's not a subject that can be neglected, particularly by the United States, in as much as we do have responsibility. Uh, so I'm glad to have this good panel here. We will begin with um, His Excellency Ambassador Mayan Arakat, who is the Chief Representative of the Palestine Liberation Organization to the United States, and a man who has extensive experience on the negotiating, negotiating teams uh, in the PLO, uh, and followed by Ms. Karen Koning Abu Zayed, who is uh, a member of the Board of Directors of my organization, Middle East Policy Council, but uh, is um, Commissioner of the um, Commission of Inquiry on the Syrian Arab Republic, which was uh, commissioned by the UN Human Rights Council, and was formerly Under Secretary General and Commissioner General of the um, UN Human Rights, uh, pardon me, United Nations uh, Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. And um, then Mr. Matthew Reynolds, who's the North American representative of the um, UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, and formerly was uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Legislative Affairs. And um, Bill Corcoran, who's the President and CEO of the Americans for Near East Refugee Aid, and NIRA. And so we have uh, people who will be talking about the immediate efforts to promote human development in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and Lebanon and Jordan. And then we will end with Mr. Yosef Manayer, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Maryland and uh, currently executive director of the Jerusalem Fund for Education and its educational arm, the Palestine Center, and someone who publishes and speaks on major networks um, ten times more often than most doctoral candidates anywhere. So that is the panel, and I'm honored to turn it over to Mr. His Excellency Mayan Arakat. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Matthias and uh, Doctor. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, there is always an advantage to be the one to start, and a disadvantage, and. Uh, uh, I was told that we need to stick to the 10-minute mm -hmm. limit, so I'm just going to go quickly over a few uh, issues. But let me comment on what you uh, said, as uh, there are more immediate issues uh, in the region. We all know uh, what is going on in the Middle East, and we believe that uh, these changes are very significant. Uh, the only thing that I want to say here that we long, the longer the Israelis and the Israeli government waits for things to settle down, the more complex the situation will become. I remember three years ago when, I don't want to even call it anything, but when the events started to happen in the Middle East, Prime Minister Netanyahu said that you know, Israel must wait until the dust settles down before they decide what their next move will be or would be. Three years later, Israel 
is not in a better position than they used to be. And the situation is not um, easy or the prospects for a political solution are not stronger. So the longer Israel waits, the less secured it will feel and the more complex the situation will become. So I think this wait and see uh, situation should not continue. Over the last 10 months, the region, from a Palestinian perspective, witnessed three important developments. One was the unraveling of the efforts of Secretary of State uh, John Kerry, the nine-month period uh, completely a collapse of the talks. And it's important to reiterate here that the reason behind the collapse of these efforts was Israel's uh, failure to honor its commitment to Secretary Kerry to release the fourth batch of Palestinian prisoners. When President Abbas was here in March and he met with U.S. officials, the Israelis asked the U.S. administration to ask President Abbas to accept to extend the negotiations beyond the nine-month period in order for them to release the fourth batch of prisoners, something we could not accept because the two issues were separate. We went to the negotiations and we already uh, made a concession to the United States by refraining from pursuing membership at UN agencies and international organizations. So that was uh, our uh, uh, offer to the administration in order to give them the chance to uh, work out a deal or a solution. It does concern me that many in Washington, uh, unfortunately a reputable, uh, someone I respect very much, a writer like Thomas Friedman, two days ago, three days ago in the New York Times, talks about the Obama offer to President Abbas. So we now, Palestinians, have three offers so far. Barack, of, uh, Hood Barak's offer at Camp David in 2000, Hood Olmert offer, and now President Obama's offer. And there is no accuracy whatsoever about an offer that was made. We were discussing ideas. Uh, the United States came up with so many proposals. We had our reservations. The Israelis had their own reservations. But to try to assign blame once again to the Palestinian president and to the Palestinian leadership is not fair and is not accurate. It's not an accurate presentation of the facts. We were waiting for a modified proposal by the United States following the meeting between President Abbas and President Obama that never was delivered by U.S. officials. So uh, we don't want to get into this blame assigning game. Uh, they did it in the past and it did not produce any uh, results. So the collapse of these uh, negotiations uh, was a, a turning point that uh, was followed by the Palestinians seeking membership in 15 uh, international organizations and conventions and then uh, a sudden surprising uh, development, the reconciliation agreement between Fatah and Hamas in May of this year that was uh, then uh, uh, followed by the formation of a national consensus government and not a national unity government. A lot of people mix between the two. A national unity government is the product 
of uh, a government that will be formed after elections between different uh, political parties. From the beginning, Israel opposed this uh, agreement because Israel has no interest to see the Palestinians united. Israel has no interest to see the Gaza Strip and the West Bank being one integral geographic uh, unit and they want to see the two uh, areas separated and they want the divisions to continue. Uh, the United States surprisingly took a rather positive, constructive approach and said let's wait and see how this government will uh, perform. So as a result, everybody knew that Israel was going to do whatever they can to scuttle the formation of this government or to undermine it. And they did not wait long until the three teenage settlers were kidnapped near Jerusalem to start a campaign in the West Bank that in three weeks left more than 19 Palestinians dead, many hundreds arrested, a campaign that continued despite the fact that three days later the Israeli intelligence and police knew that these teenagers were killed by their kidnappers. They uh, probably carried out a, a cover-up scheme not to announce uh, the fact that they have found out that they were killed. And that, of course, led to the war in Gaza, which is the third important development with all the human toll, 2,100 people, civilians, I wouldn't say civilians, 2,100 people killed, the vast majority civilian, including 500 children, 11,000 wounded, half a million displaced, 50,000 homeless, targeting honorable schools, mosques, a church as well, as well as hospitals under the pretext of self-defense. And the war on Gaza just proved what I said earlier, that if Israel wants to wait longer, then they have to expect more. If Israel wants to continue with its occupation of the Palestinian people and expect the Palestinians to sit idly by while they confiscate more land, while they violate their human rights, then they are mistaken. And I was last week at an event, and I was asked about the tunnels, about the rockets. And I said clearly, if the occupation continues, you will see more tunnels. If the occupation continues, you will see more rockets. That's a self, uh, this is a natural right for people under occupation to defend themselves. Israel cannot have or cannot be told that it is self-defense on their part to fight a people that they are occupying. A country does not qualify to have self-defense against the very same people that they are occupying. And it struck me during the summer to hear many U.S. officials and spokespeople here saying that Israel has a right to self-defense. Israel is an occupying power. An occupying power does have the right to self-defense if it was against another sovereign state like Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, but not against the Palestinian people who are under uh, occupation. So these three developments now have taken us to a very crucial juncture, which is what is next? 21 years later, after the Oslo process started, it's clear that this process has failed. 
it's clear that this process has been used as a smokescreen by the Israeli government, this current government in particular, to expand settlements and to consolidate their occupation. This is a government that does not have on its agenda any plans to end the conflict with the Palestinian people. All what they are doing is positioning themselves for the next elections. It's all domestic politics in Israel. Members of the Israeli government, including the Prime Minister, are trying to outbid and outstage each other. In the last month alone, Israel announced 2,600 settlement units and another 1,000 just three days ago. And they are expanding their settlement enterprise while all what we hear from the United States is concern. They're not helpful, not constructive. The United States can actually do a lot to stop Israel from continuing its settlement expansion, which according to U.S. official, was the main reason that Secretary Kerry's efforts failed because during the nine-month period, Israel did not seize its settlement activities and continued to plant the occupied Palestinian territories with more settlements and more settlers and contravenes with the Fort Geneva Convention of 1949, which prohibits the occupying power from moving its population to the occupied territory. So, we Palestinians, what should we expect if the international community is covering up on Israeli violations of international law and the human rights of the Palestinian people? Why can't the United States do more to stop Israel and its settlement enterprise? Why can't the United States dry up the sources of funding that goes to settlers and settlements in the West Bank, including in Jerusalem? An organization called Atiret Kohanim is registered as 501C in this country, a non-profit organization that channels money to settlers to take over Palestinian properties in Jerusalem and elsewhere. A bogus, phony company called Kendall Finances that we tried to research and find out information about it and we could not. Not registered with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, not registered anywhere that supposedly is used to channel this money. Why can't the United States act to prevent money that is going to support something that the United States is publicly opposed to? And it violates even the position of the United States. Why do they allow funders like Abraham Moskowitz in Miami and Sheldon Adelson to continue to put money to add fuel to the fire there to provoke the Palestinians in order to bring us back to that cycle of violence? The U.S. can do more. Words and rhetoric is not sufficient. They can issue advisories to, to their own citizens who hold also Israeli citizenship not to invest in the occupied West Bank. And they can boycott Israeli settlement products. There is a strong support for this if they, take, if they embark on, on a move like that within the United States, within the American Jewish community, and among Israelis as well. The settlements are not popular neither in Israel nor American, among American, the American Jewish community here. So why can't the United States take some concrete steps instead 
of continuing to issue statements that mean nothing to us. So in the absence of a meaningful bilateral process that only contributed to the consolidation of the Israeli occupation, we find ourselves compelled to take this issue to a multilateral level. United Nations, international community, they have to be involved. This bilateral process failed, and we have to admit that it failed. And as Palestinians, we cannot continue to give more time. Let's see, let's explore why Netanyahu and his government are not only making the two-state solution remote and far-fetched, but impossible. And therefore, when we say that we want to go to the United Nations, we are going to the United Nations to change the dynamics. There has to be a new approach to resolving this conflict. And that includes joining international organizations and conventions to defend the rights of our people and to put an end to this Israeli military occupation. And that also includes supporting efforts to isolate the Israeli military occupation and settlement enterprise. We are not in the business of isolating Israel as a state or the Israeli people as long as they are within their own boundaries. But we have every right to isolate the Israeli military occupation and the Israeli settlement settlers enterprise and we have the right to support others to do so and we will continue to do so. Time is of the essence. The situation in the region is unpredictable, but we very strongly believe that solving the Palestinian-Israeli conflict will contribute to efforts to help in solving other issues. You have heard recently Israeli uh, leaders flirting with, with Arab countries and Arab officials about bypassing the Palestinians, trying to forge alliances supposedly to uh, confront uh, the, same, the same threat, both, but something meaningful and real and serious is not going to happen between Israel and its Arab neighbors and the Muslim countries unless they put an end to this conflict, unless they allow the Palestinian people to live in dignity and freedom and have their own state. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador. Karen, can you come to the podium? I hate to come to the podium after Man, um, <laughs> with his passion and so on, much of which I will also put in a very much drier way. Um, the thoughts I'm going to share with you this morning are very personal ones, based on having been living with the Palestinians in Gaza from 2000 to 2010. Um, what I lived with then and continue to follow very closely until now reinforced my, by, by my being a commissioner on the UN Commissioner of Inquiry on Syria doesn't help to imagine with any certitude nor any optimism the Palestinian future or that of the region more generally. I intended to speak about the resilience and steadfastness of Palestine refugees and the promise of Palestinian children but I'm going to leave that to Matt Reynolds. Um, therefore, I begin with what seems increasingly unlikely as a future for Palestine and Palestinians, but what remains a hope, which I believe I share with Palestinians themselves, 
And that hope is for an independent state of Palestine, where Palestinians are fully in charge of their own government and politics, their own economy and social lives, and their own security. What seems to be coming, unfortunately, clearer with the passage of time is the receding of that hope, the possibility of the once celebrated two-state solution, the more recently promoted one-state solution, are constantly eroded by the deliberate, targeted, continual usurpation of West Bank and East Jerusalem land, the interference with Palestinian governing and business, everyday life, restrictions on the Palestinian Authority and on Palestinians wherever they live, and the repeated attacks on Gaza. These phenomena prevent anything resembling normal life, economic activity, or statehood from developing. Despite this bleak beginning, I believe in the strength of the Palestinian desire for independence and their intention to realize the conditions which will grant them the universal rights that are promised to all people under international law. These are promises that should be promoted by all who believe in and value human rights. Our first goal must be, as the ambassador said, to end the occupation, to allow progress toward an independent United State governed by Palestinians with open borders for both people and goods, and one which is in a safe and secure relationship with its neighbors. Is this too much to aim for? Perhaps under present political circumstances. But if justice is to be served, there must be, these must be the goals toward which we must work. For those who are skeptical, I refer you to the recently published book on Palestine by Richard Falk, entitled The Legitimacy of Hope. His thesis is that hope keeps alive the struggle for liberation, playing a key role in achieving global solidarity and eventual decolonization in accordance with international law. I also recommend the work of an Israeli journalist, Noam Shazev, who wrote recently in his 972 magazine, can I quote, it's time the Palestinian issue became a conversation on rights rather than diplomatic solutions. The failure to address the occupation casts a long shadow on the very concept of rights as a political and philosophical tool for bettering the human condition. And there are, there are however, practical developments which allow us to move from the poisonous effects of the discouraging and depressing past six decades with many of those years spent in international and regional negotiation, producing ever more deteriorating conditions for Palestinians in terms of their territory, their dignity, and their security. First, having lived and worked with Palestinians and humbly learning of their dreams, observing their abilities, and I know what could be accomplished if their skills and talents were unleashed. I don't underestimate the difficulties of occupation or the tragic consequences, personally and economically, of events such as the recent Gazan War. But I want to draw attention to the willingness, even eagerness, of the Palestinians to overcome their circumstances and make the best of the opportunities left to them. There is little or only short-lived despair, almost none of the giving up one expects to find among occupied people especially those living through repeated cycles of violence and an ongoing, firmly established system of oppression and humiliation, barely acknowledged or appreciated by anyone who's not lived under occupation. What's emerging among Palestinians and, finally, those who interact with them on a political level, but also among many others who are beginning to recognize the injustices, past and present, is that the oppression on Palestinians is long overdue for redress. Add to this 
the Palestinians of all generations, their refusal to give up their goals of freedom and independence, and you may agree there is hope for their legitimate struggle after all. I'll mention just a few of these hopeful signs. The unity, a consensus government, is in place. There's been an historic visit to Gaza by the Palestinian Prime Minister and members of his cabinet. The PA is working with the government in Gaza to take charge of the Gaza reconstruction and control the borders, we hope, with the Palestinians, with the Israelis. Private sector international and West Bank businessmen are responding with thoughts and plans for establishing links with Gaza businessmen, those devastated by the recent conflict, to help rebuild and reinvigorate the local economy. The UN Secretary General visits Gaza and takes the opportunity to directly challenge the government and Prime Minister of Israel on the occupation and the expansion of settlements, calling the destruction he witnessed in Gaza a shame on the international community. He further initiates an inquiry on the Israeli attacks on UN facilities in Gaza, all bolder actions than any taken by a Secretary General previously, new, whether they give us any results or not. Yesterday, the Jordanians took to a request for an emergency session of the Security Council on settlements. Today, that emergency session has taken place, again, previously blocked by our representative, the United States representative, to the UN. Prime Minister of Sweden announces his government's intention to recognize the observer state of Palestine as the state of Palestine. And the UK Parliament votes 174, 274 to 12 in favor of a non-binding resolution to give diplomatic recognition to a Palestine state. The Irish follow suit and Spain is moving toward a similar declaration. France makes tentatively positive remarks on recognition. All of these are symbolic, yes, but a new, meaningful, and unexpected European move in the direction of liberating the Palestinians and offering them a decent and humane future. At the Cairo conference earlier this month on the reconstruction of Gaza, pledges of $5.4 billion were made beyond the goal of $5 billion, half of which is earmarked for Gaza reconstruction. It's really a shame that it takes an inordinately disproportionate attack, a third in six years, on 1.8 million Palestinians crowded into a tiny 7 by 32 mile territory of Gaza to elicit such a response to decades long illegality, injustice, and inhumanity. A caution, however, if the draconian conditions, some of which are already appearing in the UN, Israel, PA, and negotiations, are imposed on these funds and the use of them, these pledges cannot be consummated in time to even protect Gazans from the coming winter. The siege of Gaza must be lifted. Previously uninvolved or even unfriendly organizations, media outlets, individuals, have begun to speak and write about the injustice on Palestinians and to call for more balance and attitudes to the region. This is particularly important here in the United States, where many decision makers who follow, or others those who follow only the mainstream media, are subject to or believe in only the stereotype of the Palestinians as one of the causes of an unsettled and problematic Middle East. Therefore, I suggest that we build upon these transforming movements in favor of liberating Palestine by coupling these changes and opportunities with the strength on view every day among Palestinian those in the West Bank and East Jerusalem who insist on confronting the daily struggle against impositions by the occupier, those who do not give up and take their skills and talents to where life would be easier, 
more profitable, more promising in terms of opportunities and potential achievements. And to the Gazans who, despite be facing unimaginable destruction time again and time again, respond without fail to carry on doing whatever is necessary and in their power to ensure that brighter future for their children. If there were freedom of movement and economic independence, there's no limit to what the Palestinians will achieve on their own without any humanitarian aid. But there's no guarantee for progress with any of these positive signs unless we embrace them as an international community and support those who are already trying to promote and act upon them, non-government organizations, journalists, some in some governments, and the United Nations. A final word, these were all hows, and this is another, just repeating the how. Um, just to, to emphasize uh, the plea for what has long been called for among those with knowledge and goodwill the end of occupation, the opening of borders for both people and goods across the entire Palestinian territory, that's singular, and the end of impunity for the internationally illegal acts by the occupying power, the main factor which has sustained the cycle of violence in Palestine and contributes to the unrest and the ever more frightening develops, developments in the Middle East beyond. Thank you. Yes, Matt, please. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, one of the challenges, of course, of being on a panel is that there's always some repetition of things that are, that are mentioned, but I think it's important because there are some items and concepts and issues that certainly warrant repetition and warrant thinking about uh, repeatedly. You know, since its inception in 1949, UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, that's why we just go by UNRWA, it's a long name, has provided and continues to provide crucial humanitarian and human development services to the approximately 5 million registered Palestine refugees in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Gaza, and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. It is through this special lens that we have witnessed many of the profound changes that have occurred in the Middle East over the past 65 years and how these events have impacted the Palestinians and their future. While the new ISIS crisis in Syria and Iraq has expectedly garnered much media and public attention, the recent horrific war in Gaza reminds us that the Arab-Israeli conflict, with its roots reaching deep into history, is still with us today and continues to cast a dark and unyielding shadow across the Middle East, touching virtually every issue affecting the relationship between its people. It remains the primary determinant of regional stability and prosperity. As is frequent with conflicts, what is often forgotten is that, in this case too, peace is ultimately about people. There can be no peace with almost five million refugees living in a tentative existence and the Palestine refugee issue unresolved. Palestine refugee concerns remain not only unaddressed, but are consistently removed from the narrative of negotiation and peace processing. There are even some here in the United States who believe that the Palestine refugee doesn't even exist. They claim that their status is perpetuated by UNRWA. In their view, if UNRWA were to be eliminated or defunded, there would be no Palestine refugees and poof, five million souls and one of the more complicated final status issues would just simply disappear. On the contrary, until a just and durable solution can be found to their plight, UNRWA will continue to provide a range of services that others can't or won't provide, including education, health and social support that not only sustain today but build productive lives into the future. Others on this panel who have a more political mandate, of which UNRWA does not, 
are better suited than me to comment on the future of the now stagnated peace process and how that bodes for the future of all Palestinians. But it is very clear that simply maintaining the so-called status quo is unsustainable and dangerous. While the goal must ultimately remain achieving a final comprehensive peace agreement, the currently deteriorating situation in the region, particularly facing Palestine refugees, necessitates action, albeit realistically of a more modest scope and impact. With the exception of the Arab-Israeli wars of 1948, 67, and 73, UNRWA and the Palestine refugees have not faced this level of crises in all five fields of operation until now. It is simply overwhelming. Nowhere is the need to change the paradigm more obvious than in Gaza, the home to 1.2 million Palestine refugees. Over the past six years, there have been three wars in Gaza, as Karen pointed out, and Karen lived through, um, through one of these, a hard one in, in 2008 to 9. This most recent was the longest, some 50 days, and the, certainly the most devastating. 2,254 Palestinians, 538 of them children, and 71 Israelis, mostly soldiers, but including five civilians and including a little boy, were killed. I was recently in Gaza only a few weeks ago, and I can tell you the situation on the ground is devastating. Entire neighborhoods in Gaza, like El Shujaya, were flattened by artillery barrages, not the much-proclaimed surgical strikes. Key infrastructure, including electrical, water, and sewage systems, were targeted and destroyed. Many factories and large swaths of Gaza's very limited farmland were badly damaged. At the height of the conflict, some 400,000 of Gaza's 1.8 million population was displaced, with 290,000 of them cramming and seeking shelter in 90 UNRWA schools. It has been estimated that some 100,000 homes have been destroyed or damaged, affecting 600,000 Palestinians. That's as if the entire Washington, D.C. Um, was affected. 38,000 of these homeless continue to live in 18 UNRWA schools, and as Karen pointed out, winter is right around the corner. In my professional career, I have unfortunately been eyewitness to a number of wars. The disproportionality of this one is striking and disturbing. In this war, not even the United Nations was immune from violations of our neutrality. Both sides are guilty of breaking international law. Palestinian militants for attempting to hide rockets and munitions in three UNRWA schools, and Israel for firing on seven UNRWA schools, including three incidents where UNRWA schools were sheltering thousands of civilians who were evacuated their homes to, this, to these safe havens per IDF command and resulting in 40 fatalities and scores of injuries. And this occurred after multiple notifications of GPS coordinates to the IDF by UNRWA, something even noted publicly by President Obama. It's sad also to report that 11 of my UNRWA colleagues were killed in Gaza. No, this status quo is not sustainable. For a start, Israel needs to ease or lift the illegal blockade strangling Gaza. This can be done without compromising Israel's legitimate and serious security needs. Lifting the blockade is an essential parameter to enable Gaza to emerge from years of suffering, joblessness, and a lack of functioning economy. Continuing the status quo will only exacerbate these incubators of, des of despair, desperation, and violence, likely leading to yet another war, probably sooner rather than later. There is a positive alternative to be pursued. Allow for freedom of travel, to import and export, and to attain self-sufficiency. The Palestinian national consensus government can accelerate this process by engaging immediately and effectively in Gaza. As IDF chief Benny Gantz said a week and a half ago, at the end of the day, 1.8 million Palestinians live there, and the quiet is also dependent on the trend of creating economic hope there. Read between the lines. It's time for a change. If the military can understand that, why can't the politicians?
This is just one example in one field, Gaza, where modest but certainly positive action to support a better future for Palestine refugees. Time does not permit today, but there may be more examples. There are many more examples in all the other fields I could share, especially in Syria. Let's not forget Syria, where 50% of the 540,000 Palestine refugees are internally displaced, and 65,000 have fled the country to many, many living in conditions far worse and unpredictable. 18,000 Palestinians and Syrians remain besieged in Yarmouk with severe shortages of clean water, food, health care, and, well, everything. The title of this panel is The Palestinian Future. While the picture for Palestinians, and for Palestinian refugees in particular, may look bleak, look especially in the near term, they are unwanted and unwelcome in some places, or facing collective punishment and discrimination in others. Despite the real challenges and obstacles ahead, I try to be an optimist, and so I'm going to end on this recent experience in Gaza. On Sunday, September 14th, just about a month ago, I stood in the courtyard of the Abu Tayyim School in Khan Yunus, Gaza Strip, for the official school opening assembly commemorating the opening of all UNRWA schools in Gaza. I just want to point out, give a little shout out here, um, with Herculean efforts, my colleagues in Gaza were able to get a system of 252 schools with 241,000 students. That's the size of the Broward County school system in Florida, the seventh largest in the United States. And oh, by the way, in Gaza schools, UNRWA only educates grades one through nine. They were able to open and do all of that in just 18 days after the ceasefire. While some students sadly portrayed the effects of shell shock and fright, others had that broad smile on their faces. They were happy to be back at school, happy to be back learning, back to dreaming of a future filled with peace and opportunity. Despite the horrors they lived through, these 10-year-old Palestinian kids still have resiliency and hope. There can be a better future. Smart leaders on all sides of the conflict should understand and act on that. And it means changing, in the right direction, the status quo. Thank you. Let me mix this up a bit and work from the micro and extrapolate then to the macro about the future of Palestine. And I'll do this in the context of Gaza again, because I would posit that Gaza is a key indicator of where Palestine is actually going for this reason. If we look at the protocol and the frameworks that are adopted by Israel and imposed on all of us, that will be concrete and illustrative of either a hardened attitude of perpetual occupation or a new openness to ending the status quo. So even the West Bank and Jerusalem should take notice of how the people of Gaza are treated. The immediate task at hand is obvious. Gaza must be rebuilt and rebuilt quickly and that requires a business-like approach that is both speedy and efficient because some of the early predictions by the shelter cluster, for instance, say that at this pace of reconstruction, it will require another 20 years to rebuild Gaza. Without equivocation, that pace of rebuilding would be morally unacceptable and actually evil. The Palestinian Authority have offered a reconstruction plan, and I would uh, commend it to your reading. It's highly credible, if not somewhat conservative in its estimates of dollars. But to implement it, there are two major ingredients that I constantly look at as my benchmark of how we're proceeding. And for an NGO, those two benchmarks are cement and staff. Cement. Cement is an absolutely critical uh, element for rebuilding Gaza, and all building materials cannot be overstated. 
And in talking to the Palestinian Contractors Union, for instance, they gave me some context of how desperate the situation is. The amount of debris in this war versus 2009 is four times more. The targets that were involved in 2009 were Hamas facilities and ministries. This time we're talking about homes, factories, and apartment buildings. Therefore, the human impact is that much more visible. And finally, the supply chain, or at least the alternative supply chain, has been eliminated. The commercial tunnels from Egypt are closed, and therefore, this makes then Kedem Shalom, the Israeli cargo entry point, the only entry point for anything coming now into Gaza. And despite all the press releases that have touted the entry of cement into Gaza, the reality is it was one shipment of about 30% of the monthly requirement, and it was delivered to the United Nations, and I congratulate them, but it's for the United Nations only, and so the rest of us cannot access that. The practical dilemma then is this. For someone like Anera, we have no framework for the importation of cement, and we see no one in the near future that is being presented to us. So private projects that we have lie dormant. Anera has received money from the government of Kuwait to rebuild preschools throughout Gaza. We have identified them. We're ready to go, except we have insufficient cement. And the same goes for the projects that we, we partner with USAID on. These are water and sanitation projects across Gaza. We, again, are in negotiations with the Israelis, and yet this still has not been approved. And so many neighborhoods throughout Gaza are only able to access fresh water when we deliver bottled water or tanker trucks. At this point, after a disaster, in traditional emergency management stages, we should have finished the relief stage, and we should have been moving on now to reconstruction and recovery. To make it more real, since July, Anera has delivered $5 million worth of projects to Gaza. And with the assistance of USAID, another $3 million. But tragically, of that $8 million that's been delivered to Gaza, it has been relegated to distributions of clothing, food, water, and medicine. And while they've all been desperately needed, a prolonged period of relief is counterproductive for Gazans. They want to be independent, not dependent. They do not want to be on welfare. And if cement were truly available now, that would not be needed because cement would unilaterally generate business activity. As contractors employ laborers and thereby stimulate the economy on their own. But now, without cement, we have 60% unemployment. Another pitfall of not having cement is that we risk a rapid deterioration of public health as the winter rains approach. Until now, the humanitarian community has congratulated itself on stemming the possibility of disease. Because while the sewage was running in the streets and while clean water was unavailable in many neighborhoods, and when congested shelters housed families who were unable to shower for days on end, we filled that gap in public health, but I submit to you that no matter what the NGO community did at that time, it was temporary. And as exposure to winter temperatures hits hundreds of thousands of people without proper shelter, and as the return of sewage in the streets comes with the inevitable winter floods, 
we can only see new threats for disease. Quite simply, the public health infrastructure, the systems of water and sanitation are woefully inadequate to handle the stress of winter conditions. So massive physical improvements must be made now and without delay and again. They all require cement. In Gaza, let me offer you my second benchmark of how I'm seeing the future of Palestine, and that is the, the easy access and free passage of NGO staff. 16 of our 85 staff in Palestine are in Gaza. They're all Palestinians. They lived there day in and day out during the days of bombing. They worked every week and they performed beautifully. But now, they're fragile, very fragile. This is their third war in five years. They went through 51 days of warfare as they sat in their living rooms wondering, and it's touched every single person on our staff, including one of our program coordinators, who lost 22 members of his own family. As a result, the staff are working, but they have not bounced back. They require assistance. If they're going to be truly healthy and productive, but we can't treat them. We have attempted to bring into Gaza a Jerusalem doctor who's a trauma specialist, but the permit has been endlessly delayed. We have tried to bring our Gaza staff into Jerusalem for counseling with that person, for meetings and for R&R, and all too many of our staff have been rejected for permits. And then we have tried to infuse new energy into our Gaza office by bringing our own West Bank and Jerusalem staff into Gaza to be seconded there for a period of weeks. One of our agronomists agreed to go into Gaza to work on land reclamation for farmland. Another, a pharmacist, agreed to go in and help repair clinics. And even after coordination with Israel, they were turned back at Erez Crossing. We are coping with exhausted staff who are professionals, but they are impaired in their rebuilding. And why? Because a protocol hasn't changed one bit since the invasion. Let's not fool ourselves. Despite all the rhetoric and the promises and the press conferences, the ability of humanitarian actors to respond is hampered, and it's hampered by political decisions. We have exhausted personnel and a supply chain that doesn't function freely. And so the aid community profoundly needs the cooperation of Israeli authorities in approving a new and an enhanced regime. What's the future of Palestine? During deliberations recently in, in a board meeting of ANERA, a board member turned to me and said, if there is no political progress or movement, how does ANERA, or any NGO for that matter, work in a future of perpetual occupation, increasing regulation, and probably daily strife like we see in Jerusalem now? If I were a Jerusalemite or a West Banker and looked at Gaza, I would be very worried. Joseph, please. Thank you all very much. Thank you um, 
to the council and uh, to my co-panelists as well. Uh, the title of this uh, panel is The Palestinian Future. It is said that you cannot know where you are going until you know where you have been. And on this I completely agree. For Palestinians where they've been, and this is central to understanding how to address moving forward in their future, where they have been, where they continue to be, where they continue to struggle, is in a struggle against colonialism. One that began against the British prior to 1948, one that was then transferred uh, to the Zionist movement in the State of Israel after that. Palestinians continue to face a struggle against domination by forces that came from the outside of Palestine to control the native population. This is not just about the occupation of 1967. This is about multiple moments in the Palestinian history which are central to understanding where they will go into the future. This is about the Nekbe and the refugees. This is about Palestinian citizens of Israel whose equality and freedom and dignity are no less important than Palestinians <coughs> anywhere else. This is about Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza for whom self-determination and basic rights have been denied and must be afforded. So what have been the attempts to correct these wrongs? What have been the attempts to create progress, to move the situation forward and to find peace? We have seen in recent decades a state-led approach, mostly dominated of course by the United States and, and the policy around this has been crafted in this very city perhaps even by some folks sitting in this room and in rooms just down the street. We saw the Oslo Accords, which called for the creation of a resolution, a Palestinian state and the resolution to all outstanding issues by the year 1999. Then we saw the roadmap for peace, which called for a Palestinian state by the year 2005. It is, you may note, the year 2014, and we are many, many more settlements and, settl uh, and settlers away from the creation of an independent Palestinian state, the uh, so-called stated and desired outcome of the U.S.-led approach. It's clear that this approach and the state-led approach in general has failed. And to make this point, I would just offer two anecdotes that recently took place to underscore the extent to which the U.S.-led approach has not only failed, but failed in a, in a quite uh, absurd way. Uh, look just this week at the reaction, for example, from the State Department to the killings of uh, two American citizens, one who was Palestinian and one who was Israeli. Just a few days ago, a Palestinian in uh, Jerusalem, in occupied Jerusalem, drove his car uh, through uh, what were a number of bystanders outside a train stop. This resulted in uh, the death uh, of a three-month-old American citizen. The State Department immediately issued a statement that adopted the Israeli narrative of events. They condemned unequivocally what they called a terrorist attack. There was no question as to why this happened, how it happened, what the circumstances were, even though the family of the young man uh, who has since died uh, stated that this was uh, an accident, was unintentional, 
that the child was, that the man was in fact mentally disturbed. That just this morning, the morning before, he had been to a doctor to get a reference to go seek psychiatric help because the years that he spent being tortured by Israeli security services uh, had left him, as his mother said, a different human being. But nobody asked those questions. Nobody asked why. The immediate response from the State Department was the adoption of the Israeli narrative of events. Uh, that man ended up dying even though his wounds were not, um, uh, were not severe enough to lead to his death. And an Israeli medical institute, in fact, in issuing his autopsy, found that the cause of death, death was medical negligence because he was not brought to the hospital in time. His body was ultimately released uh, to the family, but not until the Israeli state negotiated with them the number of mourners that would be allowed at the funeral. And it was then released to them at a late period of time in the evening so that there could not be the kind of uh, funeral that the family wanted. Contrast this with the killing of a U.S. citizen outside of the Palestinian village of Silwad, a 14-year-old boy who was shot and killed by uh, Israeli forces with live fire. The bullet entered the back of his uh, neck and went out through his head. Uh, he was pronounced dead that evening. Uh, the State Department said that they are calling for a speedy investigation into the events. Who was to do the investigation? The same forces that shot the child. Look at the reaction and the difference in the reaction to the killing of what is essentially two Americans and the way in which the State Department simply could not say what needed to be said. They could not condemn what was in fact the murder of an American child, a Palestinian child, resisting the Israeli occupation, something that is fundamentally his right. The second anecdote I will point to is one that um, <coughs> took, is beginning to take place after the release of some interesting reporting yesterday. Uh, in an article called The Crisis in U.S.-Israeli Relations is Here. Uh, some of you may have uh, read this report and there's been a lot of name-calling uh, from senior administration officials who are unnamed in this uh, uh, reporting uh, about the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu using some language that I could not repeat before this audience here, uh, but uh, nonetheless uh, recognizing him for his cowardice. And I find it interesting that senior administration officials who are in a position to actually use leverage over the Israeli state, yet refuse to because of their own cowardice, because of domestic political calculations, take to the pages of their press to uh, anonymously uh, call uh, the Israeli prime minister a coward. We've all known the stances of this Israeli prime minister and his right-wing government for a very long time. But what I think this underscores is that despite having the ability to create the change necessary, uh, the real cowardice is here in this city because they simply do not want to take the steps necessary to pressure the Israeli state. So where do we go to if this state-led approach has failed? There is, as the ambassador mentioned, the path of internationalization, going to the United Nations and going to the ICC. Perhaps this is something that can work, but where I would differ is that I do believe that the only path towards changing Israeli state behavior is isolating not just the Israeli occupation, but the Israeli state itself. Because the reality is 
even if we look at settlements, for example, as the root cause uh, of, of the challenges to peace at this moment, these settlements don't sprout atop hilltops in the West Bank by themselves. They are supported by a state. They are supported by a state which is enforcing uh, the discrimination against Palestinians in the West Bank, enforcing the denial of resources to Palestinians in the West Bank, creating the infrastructure and the tax in incentives for people to come from Brooklyn to live in Ma'ale Adumim so that they can continue to control what, is, what little is left of the West Bank and keep it for themselves instead of the Palestinians. It is the Israeli state that is the problem. And so while I appreciate, for example, the efforts of uh, Kuwait, who just the other day announced that they would boycott and not do business with 50 different companies that are uh, profiting off of the Israeli occupation, more must be done to isolate the Israeli state in every possible uh, forum. In closing, we must remember that where the Palestinians have been is a history of many rights denied and only an approach that demands all of these rights, nothing more, nothing less. Only then and through that way can we ensure that the Palestinian future is one of dignity and freedom for Palestinians and all those involved in this conflict. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, we started and ended with political issues, and in the middle we dealt with um, on-the-ground human issues. Uh, I'd like to start the first question uh, with, the, with the human question, and it is, it is a question, actually, that the NQSAR staff developed. Now, people have touched on... Yeah. Want me to come here? Yeah, then they can answer from being seated. Want me to go there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to begin with a question here in your booklet. And uh, now some people have touched on this, but let's focus on it. Um, is there a possibility uh, for another ceasefire agreement between Egypt and Hamas, uh, negotiated by Egypt, that would be between Hamas and Israel? Um, and um, would it produce terms uh, that would be better than the protocols that exist now? And um, if not, what kind of pressure would uh, you pre prescribe in order to bring that about? Any, any one of you. Thank you. Um, I don't think it's an issue of extending ceasefires, and I don't think the problem in Gaza is, it is humanitarian because of what Israel did uh, during the 51 days of, uh, uh, of war against uh, civilians there, but I think we should not be distracted from the root cause, the underlying causes of this problem. Uh, many uh, speakers mentioned the blockade, the illegal blockade. Uh, there were no tunnels in 2007 when Israel imposed the blockade against uh, the Gaza Strip. The tunnels were originally built to smuggle goods. People wanted to survive. They were besieged, not allowed to import goods. And then they were turned into uh, to be used for, for military purposes. So 
I, I don't agree that we should seek short fixes. Uh, this is a political issue. It has to do with uh, 1.8 million Palestinians living in an open-air jail, denied the uh, freedom of movement, and then the larger picture, which is Israeli actions and practices in the West Bank. Israel is taking advantage of what is going in the Gaza Strip, the focus on the Gaza Strip, the reconstruction that Bill mentioned is subject to Israeli uh, restrictions uh, to continue uh, its uh, annexation and, and planting of additional settlements and settlers in the West Bank to completely uh, render a two-state solution obsolete. So, this is not an issue of extension of ceasefires. I think, you know, we, we need to focus on the larger picture. The only way we can relieve the pressure in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, uh, like Karen said, is if we allow the Palestinians to be able to run their own affairs. If we can establish a state, exploit our potential, we don't need any humanitarian aid or any, any support from the international community. We have been trying for the last four years to convince the Israelis through the U.S. administration to allow us to embark on a series of projects in areas near the Dead Sea that could create thousands of jobs and add between 2.8 to 3.4 billion dollars to our GDP and the Israelis have been rejecting that. This is an economic occupation, it's a political occupation, it's water-related occupation. So we need to end the occupation in order to deal with all these issues. I definitely take your point about the importance of the larger political issues, but for the record, factually, maybe Bill, you could address this, is there any reasonable prospect of another agreement being negotiated in the next month that would, that would ease restrictions, and what role could the U.S. play in bringing that about? Uh, I, in part of this, Tom, I'd be speculating as to what the timeline of the Israelis is right now. At this point, uh, we have seen draft frameworks that would be uh, offered to NGOs, for instance, that could be used. I think uh, the United Nations has signed a framework uh, right now. But um, how this is going to spread out and how it's going to work quickly as a protocol for all importation of building materials is very, very unclear right now. And uh, as I said before, even the U.S. government uh, has not been able to finalize an agreement with the Israelis for its projects within Gaza. Tom, if I could, uh, could just add, if you really want to see, when I mentioned draconian conditions, it's because of what's been negotiated and so far agreed between the United Nations, the Palestinian Authority, and the Israelis on taking any of these materials in that relate to the donations that have been made at the Reconstruction Conference. And you can't believe they want to have cameras everywhere, camera on every facility that's going to be receiving any of these the, the things so that they can be tracked. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Everyone has to fill out long forms for a family that's going to have a home rebuild. It, you know, people just sort of are dismissing it uh, who aren't already trying to implement it, which we will still try to do. But it's a, it's a real big, very big problem, and it's not just Hamas or Israel. Can I just add one thing to that, Tom? That, um, when it comes to ceasefires in Gaza, there the one problem that I think we're about to repeat um, that was evident in previous ceasefires, and we saw it both in 2008 and 2012, there were ceasefire agreements 
that um, worked for some period of time to some extent. But the, the reason that they fell apart is that there was no independent and credible monitoring mechanism to ensure that the stronger party, in this case the Israelis, did not take advantage of their position of power to continue to violate the agreement. So you'd see things like periodic shootings of Palestinians inside the quote-unquote buffer zone, beyond the buffer zone, the uh, arrest of Palestinian fishermen and the shooting of Palestinian fishermen, all these sorts of provocative acts that um, had no mechanism uh, of redress. And so without that, without that third party, without that mechanism, what way are Palestinians left to respond to these provocations with other than through the use of arms? There's only uh, a certain extent to which one could be pushed and abused before they're going to start uh, fighting back. So the question now is, and we've seen a number of these incidents since the end of, of the major hostilities in the summer. Uh, is that going to be addressed? And I think if not, then we're really only setting up the situation for another rapid deterioration into the kind of hostilities that we saw this summer. Thank you. There are a number of questions here which are about the, um, the U.S. role. Um, they're of a general nature, and then there are questions that are more specific. So um, the general kind of questions I'm seeing here are, will there ever be a Palestinian future with the U.S.'s inability to change its relationship with Israel? And then um, here's a factual question that is more specific. Uh, one person in the audience indicates that um, Jeff Goldberg is writing in the Atlantic that the U.S. is... See, this question, will there ever be a Palestinian future with the U.S. inability to change its relationship with Israel, presupposes that we can't do that. And this question, which is more specific, uh, suggests that maybe we can. Uh, Goldberg is saying that the U.S. may introduce a resolution at the U.N. criticizing Israel's settlement policy in lieu of recognizing Palestinian statehood. Is there any, have you seen any indication that this is really in the works? Would you welcome it? Would it be sufficient? You want to take that? Sure. Okay. Well, I think uh, important uh, observations during the war in Gaza showed that, you know, to some extent, Congress and the administration are detached from the realities on the ground. Even in the United States, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal, NBC, you know, poll found that 53% of Americans, 53% of Americans, urging their, the administration to take uh, an even-handed approach to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. That's a large number. And then the millennials gap uh, that you have been all watching the age groups from 19 to 30, 30 to 44, and up uh, the percentage of uh, you know people who were questioned, uh, who opposed or didn't think that Israel was justified in its war in Gaza. This shows that this overwhelming support for Israeli policies that uh, members of Congress and administration are projecting the shared values 
between a country like the United States that respects human rights at, within, within its boundaries, uh, value uh, uh, the, the, the rights of every individual, uh, respects, you know, it shows uh, religious tolerance and everything. What are the shared values between the United States and a country like Israel that continues to violate international law, violate human rights, commit war crimes, uh, and, and then what we get, like Yusuf alluded to, is a very, very uh, indirect, uh, soft reaction to, to, to these violations. I think we are not seeking, we are not asking the United States to change a special relationship with Israel. And we understand very well uh, the domestic uh, impact and uh, that, the, that Israel is not a foreign policy issue in this country, it's a domestic issue. We understand that. But I think we are at the same time witnessing a growing <coughs> movement in this country that is calling for holding all the parties accountable to the same principles. And that this conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis is turning into a conflict for justice and equality. And therefore, it is getting larger and larger. And that's what you are seeing on campuses. That's what you are seeing among uh, different segments of uh, the U.S. society. I think this is what will bring about uh, the change and prove to members of Congress that they are not reflecting the true sentiments, the true feelings of those who elected them when they go you know, out publicly condemning UNRWA, calling for cutting off aid to uh, an organization that has been providing humanitarian support, much needed for Palestinian refugees. And they, they even attack the administration for criticizing uh, uh, the settlement policy. Uh, I think these developments within the American uh, society will eventually create enough leverage and pressure to uh, make the United States not abandon Israel, but at least take a more even-handed approach that will hold Israel accountable to its actions. Yeah, Tom, just to call attention okay. to that resolution I mentioned, it was called for by Jordan, not the United States, uh, yesterday, and it's going to be debated today, which I think is quite unusual, and it means that the U.S. representative did not lobby everyone against it. So that much has been accepted, and let's see what the resolution says, and then let's see if the resolution is followed. That's something but, but else. Just, just to allude, it, it was done upon the request upon of the request of the Palestinian ambassador, yeah. Because they, they, Jordan is the only Arab country yes, in the 15 member I would I would add that you know I I think in general the ambassador is, is right about the change in the United States in terms of uh, public opinion, particularly among certain demographics. Um, but when we talk about as this this uh, question referenced the article yesterday, the, a crisis in U.S.-Israel relations. I found it sort of comical, the title, because while there may be some differences of opinion between individuals, the relationship between the United States and Israel is far more complex than the relationship between individuals, right? I've never seen a crisis in relations between two countries where one continues to be among the you know, largest recipients of military aid of that country, right? So there's still very, very strong ties between Israel and the United States, even if there may be personal conflicts between, you know, certain individuals. This summer, when you had massacres happening in the Gaza, Gaza Strip, 
um, that were happening with the use of U.S. weapons, and the United States, in fact, opened up their arms caches for the Israelis so that they could effectively reload, right? The United States very quietly sort of began to reevaluate its um, military assistance to Israel for certain types of weapons and so on, which was really not meant to be uh, anything more than uh, a slight message uh, to the Israelis that, well, we're not very much approving of what you're doing. But, you know, what we saw in Gaza was horrendous. And if, if that's the most that the United States is prepared to do in the face of the, the, the horrific violence that Palestinians faced in the Gaza Strip, yes, there is change happening, sure, but how long can Palestinians afford to wait for that change to really take place? And I think that we really can't. I mean, how much of Palestine is going to be left before that change actually takes place? Sure, we can't rule it out, Tom, uh, but maybe it takes 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I don't know. In the meantime, there has to be a different option. There has to be a different path forward. If, if the state-led approach fails, then I think th this approach of boycott, the civil society approach, is one that has to happen at least concurrently because Palestinians simply can't afford to wait for Washington to get in line with the program. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I might add that even if the United States were to write a resolution, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the United States would allow it to pass. You have written resolutions in the past that we've, we've vetoed. Um, but uh, he, here's another question uh, that's of a general nature. Uh, you know, panelists talked about how this, this conflict and this situation on the ground is, is not sustainable and gave reasons, but let's go back to it because there are members of the current Israeli government who believe that, that the situation is indeed sustainable, that they absolutely can manage it. And that, they, and that they intend to manage it rather than solve it. So let's marshal a few arguments that would be persuasive to them. <coughs> Anyone? Oh, and, and Maybe it, it, it would be, yeah, and we could, we could add to that, because here's a question from the audience. Um, how can the various factions of the Israeli lobby in the U.S. be persuaded that the status quo is not sustainable? and that a mutually agreed upon peace settlement is in the best interests of all the parties. Well, I can actually throw in something that's actually quite easy um, because of sustainability. If you look at Gaza, the United Nations put out a report on 2020 Gaza, and it's not just about, in the year 2020, it's not just about sustainability of, of, an, of an economy. You're going to have an entire aquifer with salt water in, in, intrusion. I can tell you Mother Nature does not follow walls that are built on top of the land. So if you're even an Israeli, you should be a little concerned about the, the disaster that's happening to the aquifer. That's the same aquifer that goes right up to Ashdod and Ashkelon. There's just a perfect example right there of how unsustainable just it is through Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've said before, I think this is actually, well, environmental sustainability, humanitarian sustainability is one thing. But politically, I believe this is one of the big myths about this entire issue, that, that the situation is unsustainable. We keep saying that. We keep hearing that. But the reality is nothing has sustained in the Middle East as long as this occupation. 
Um, and, and the reason that that happens is because from day one, not 1967, but, it, but, but from the days of the Nekba, the Israeli plan has been to manage the situation because they, they, they know that making peace requires the kind of compromises that they're not ready to make. And um, uh, that continues to be the plan today. And I think that, um, unfortunately, here in the United States, we've given the Israelis every reason to believe that perpetual occupation is a perfectly viable option. And uh, until that changes, why would they make a different calculation? If the United States is prepared to defend them from all costs of the occupation, they're going to continue pursuing it. So um, I think that, you know, in, in theory, it could be unsustainable if a lot of things are going to change. But right now, they're perfectly happy continuing this way because they're not paying any costs for it. I, th I think, too, that you have to look, that, uh, look at the other parties in Israel who are even more right-wing than Netanyahu, who uh, even if he would like to give in, they will not. And the kinds of things that they're recommending and even doing now are much more serious than what uh, the Israeli government itself is doing. I think there, there is that problem. And it, I, I go back to what the ambassador said, though, that it's, it's really, I think, up to the United States government. It's that, that's what's sustaining the Israeli government, not just in terms of uh, economics and guns and other sorts of things, but politically allowing them to get away with things and favoring them. But if you allow me, I mean, who is, who is more right-wing, the one who calls for extreme right uh, actions or the one who implements them? It's the prime minister who is implementing that. So I'm, I'm, you know, I have to disagree with you on that. I don't buy it that he finds people on the right. I don't think there is someone who is more right-wing than the current Israeli prime minister. Don't test it. <laughs> well. If, again, but if we were trying to persuade them that it's not politically sustainable and not even good for them, you know, there's the saying, um, be careful what you pray for, you might get it. If you were talking to the Israelis, would you talk about the, the, the demographic changes that are going to take place in the future and the problems they're going to have with a, a Palestinian majority? Or would you, would you, uh, would it, would it be valid to, to point out that um, uh, 20 years after the 1967 war, there was no Hamas, but after 20 years of no peace agreement, Hamas did emerge, and that the longer this goes on, the more extremism there is? And uh, is it possible that you're going to get in the occupied territories something akin to Daesh? I think you can use all these arguments. You can use the demographic, you can use the, the fact that I mentioned earlier that Israel is less secure today than they would have been in 1999 had they implemented the Oslo Accords allowed for a Palestinian state to be established. You can use all these arguments, but the most important is for Israel itself to answer. Where does Israel see itself in 20 years, 25 years? And um, uh, whether they really intend to be there in 25 years or 50 years. And if they decide, if they can answer that question themselves, then they have to look at the region. They will be surrounded by Lebanese, Syrians, Palestinians, Jordanians, Egyptians, Iraqis, uh, and then go to the east to Pakistan, Iran, go to the, uh, to the west to Morocco. 
these, these nations and countries are not going to disappear. They're going to be there 50 years, 100 years from now. I mean, I know some will argue that the changes that are taking place could affect the, the, the existence of some of these countries. But it's Israel's question. If they want to survive in that region, they need to make peace with their neighbors. They cannot continue to aspire to be part of the Western world, part of Europe, part of the Western culture, and find themselves physically located in a country by Middle Easterners. So they either coexist with the neighboring countries or they have to answer the question of whether they will be able to sustain their presence for another 20, 30, or 50 years in that region. I think this is the fundamental questions, taking into account all uh, the factors or the issues that you mentioned, but that is a question that Israelis are not addressing, and many in Israel themselves are asking their government. I read something at the beginning of the war. I said, I don't want to tell me where uh, this country will be or where Egypt will be or where Saudi Arabia will be. Tell me where Israel would be in 20 years. And he addressed that question to the prime minister. And I don't think they are giving serious thought about this issue or giving enough importance about issue, giving all the changes that are taking place. I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because I think all of these arguments are deeply, deeply problematic. The reason is, the, the, the premise behind all of them is, Israel should stop violating Palestinian rights, should afford them their basic rights, because it's good for Israel, right? Um, no, Israel should stop violating Palestinian rights because it's wrong. And when we tell the Israelis, look, this is really in your own interest, the answer that the Israelis always come back with is, thanks very much for your concern. Okay, but we'll define what's, what's good for our security. And, and the United States has always yielded to Israel on its own, on its own security. And that's been kind of this, this red line. So I think that, that that approach has really allowed the Israelis to dictate how and when the process moves forward instead of imposing it on them um, when, when they've really crossed lines that, that, that they have and consistently have for years now. Okay, then uh, let's go to a question from the audience that, that um, your comment leads into this. Um, instead of persuading them about what's in their own interest, um, how can the U.S. play an appropriate role in its policies toward Israel that the word that's used here, here is that incentivizes Israel to change the status quo and agree to a sustainable peace settlement, and one or two other people have used the word pressure. Nobody actually used the word sanctions, but uh, is that what is necessary? Is it necessary for the United States to, um, instead of only taking out of its toolbox incentives, to finally take out sanctions? I mean, my view on this is that it comes down to simple math, right? The occupation right now for the Israelis is a profitable enterprise. The cost of the occupation in terms of uh, military um, spending uh, related to GDP is half of what it was 20 years ago and a third of what it was 20 years before that. And what they're profiting off of having the territory, both economically and politically in terms of the natural resources, the mineral resources, the land resources, and what it's meant for the politicians who are catering to settler constituencies, 
you have every reason to continue this occupation until there's some weight put on the other side of the scale. And that right now, there are fewer costs associated with the occupation than ever before. That's what has to change. And if that's going to come from the Americans, or from the international community, or from Palestinians, or from the Arab world, or wherever, anyone who can add to that side of the scale, I think, is pushing us in the right direction. I think, I think the Israel right now is taking the United States for granted. But, uh, I, I saw this, these reports about what Jeffrey Goldberg said, but uh, only yesterday, two days ago, three days ago, the Israeli defense minister, who supposedly was snubbed by the U.S. administration, signed a deal with, uh, with, with, the, with the Pentagon to provide more F-35 uh, fighter planes, $2.7 billion worth. I mean, I think in addition to Israel, Turkey is the other foreign country, uh, you know, outside of the United States that, that are going to have these, uh, you know, sophisticated fighter jets. And it's clear that from the beginning that Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to buy as much time as possible until the term of this the President of the United States is over. It was clear, you know, that it was a matter of who will uh, be able to win. And now with the midterm elections, with all the projections that we're going to see a Republican uh, majority in Congress, Netanyahu, I think, falsely believes that this would strengthen his hand. The answer to that is stop giving Israel too much carrots. I mean, we've been giving them carrots, 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 hoping that they will change their, uh, their policies and their, and their position. My advice, let us deal with the Israelis. Sit on the sidelines. If the United States is not going to hold Israel accountable, sit on the sidelines. Let us deal with them. And then we will see how Israel will function when the United States remove that political cover, especially at UN organizations and agencies. They are acting arrogantly, and if the United States is not going to hold them accountable, allow us to deal with them at international fora. And we will be able to deal with the Israelis at international fora. But don't, 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 hold us, don't hold us hostage for a process. Don't keep asking us for more time. Because it is not going to change anything on the ground. This government has no intention. This Israeli government has no intention of ending the conflict with the Palestinians. Tom, just to add some details about how much uh, they benefit from occupying Gaza. And even this, uh, the reconstruction, 500 million, uh, the estimates are that three quarters of that will go to Israel because one of the con conditions is that all the companies that everybody has to buy everything from are in Israel. And everything that comes through off the borders is given taxes to Israel and so on. It's, uh, you know, it, as they say, they're benefiting in every direction on this. I don't know if Paul Finley is going to be able to say anything about his, um, his little pamphlet going around and his approach that he's making to the the government here is on something called tough love. And uh, I wouldn't want to try to represent him, but it is the very sort of the same things you're talking about, is that the, the, you, this government has to exercise tough love on Israel. Sure. Congressman Finley. Um, needs to have a microphone. 
Could someone on the staff bring them? Israel is guilty of criminal conduct every day of the year. Microphone. Our government is complicit in this illegal conduct. We should cease all supportive relationships with Israel until it behaves. <laughs> And if we don't, then uh, it brings us back to the issue of other actors and other processes that the ambassador was, was mentioning. And maybe uh, because there are a series of questions here on that subject, we should, we should take it up in the next five minutes because that's how much time we have. Um, Is the EU planning to uh, conduct direct talks with Israel uh, in order to save the two-state solution? And let me combine it with another question. Um, whether it's the United States or the EU or uh, <clears throat> is the rightward drift in Israel and the um, the, the change in thinking among Palestinians and some of their supporters here that a one-state solution would, would actually be preferable because uh, that's the uh, if there is no two-state solution eventually the world will not tolerate the situation and the Palestinians will ultimately get equal rights in this one state. Uh, is it is it too late for the United States? Is it time for someone else? Um, and even if someone else gets involved, is it too late for two states? That's, I think that's the way to end it. You know, it is a fact that there is a growing uh, support even among Israelis for one state solution and, uh, and and Palestinians but we both call for a one state solution for different reasons the, the Israelis want a one state solution so that they can completely destroy the prospect of an independent Palestinian state while uh, Palestinians believe that the two state solution with all the settlement enterprise have become completely uh, impossible and let's go for one state binational uh, and, and switch the struggle from political to social justice and equality. It doesn't mean that the Israelis will give in. Even if they become a minority after 15, 20 years, the struggle will continue. We will have a minority ruling a majority, and it will, it will take many, many more years uh, to uh, you know, get that issue uh, resolved. And uh, uh, you, you mentioned the, the role of Europe. Um, although I am encouraged by... Uh, the recognition and the votings and everything, I don't think it's sufficient, especially from a country like Britain, who uh, should uh, be uh, uh, rise up to its moral uh, and ethical responsibilities to correct uh, you know, the wrong that it, it, it created in 1917 with issuing the Balfour Declaration and leading to uh, this uh, current uh, conflict between Palestinians, really abandoning Palestine in 1947, 
allowing for the two uh, sides to, to fight each other. Uh, I, I, they are symbolic, but unfortunately they are not going to change on the ground, anything on the ground. Israel is not going to change anything on the ground unless there is a concerted international effort that will go beyond political statements, urging the two sides to sit. We cannot have peace more than the two parties. We cannot have peace unless the two leaderships are willing to engage. I think there has to be a concerted international effort, including Europe, United Nations, and the United States, which is going to be a very uh, important uh, player, to make it clear, not only to the Israelis, to the all parties, that it is in the interest of the international community to put an end to this conflict. There is an international fatigue about the Middle East conflict, and donors at the, Gaza, the Cairo conference made it clear that they don't want to rebuild the Gaza Strip for, after two years, three years, Israel will come once again and destroy it. I would have loved to see Israel in that, uh, in that conference. I would have loved the, you know, the participants to submit the bill to the Israelis to rebuild the Gaza Strip because they destroyed the Gaza Strip, not the international community. And therefore, unless there is an international, concerted international effort where the United States play an important role but not the leading role, there will not be a resolution to this conflict, unfortunately. Yes. And then John wants to say a few words. Yes. In the, in the, in the pre-Netanyahu days, uh, the threats to the two-state solution that we were talking about were really about viability and contiguity of the would-be Palestinian state in, in the West Bank, right? You had settlements like Ma'ale Adumim and Ariel, which are cutting deep into the West Bank, and it would basically divide the West Bank. Compounding that today, you have this new challenge that the Israelis present to any possible Palestinian state. Um, and, and that's really this question of sovereignty altogether, right? Today, you have the defense minister, for example, saying that at the greatest possible extent, what Palestinians could hope for is some sort of autonomy, right? Not independence, not sovereignty. So this is completely sort of undercuts the notion of, of statehood. And you have the Israeli prime minister saying things like, well, before we can even talk about um, you know, a Palestinian state, our security has to be guaranteed, long-term presence. You know, basically what they're saying is that there is no two-state solution. And there may never have been a two-state solution. So I think the Israelis, what they're telling us today is that um, it's very clear that not just because of the geography and the demographics, but they simply don't want a Palestinian state to exist there. And they're perfectly happy to defend that uh, into the future. Last comment, Matt. Yeah, I'm, I might add that in the equation and all the complexities in talking about a one state, a two state, it's very important to remember there are five million pa registered Palestine refugees. Three million of them are outside of what, of what was mandated Palestine back in 1948. They're in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and their plight is quite great. And as I mentioned in this statement, you know, there is a lot of narrative, but in fact, the Palestine refugee is not really at the table and needs to be at the table. They are part of the equation. Yes, and you know, we've discussed one comment from me, and then we'll go to John, who wants to amplify on what Congressman Finley said. Uh, we, we talked here about how to um, hold Israel accountable, and um, you know, the other issue that ought to concern everybody in the audience is that ultimately the United States will be held accountable. We've already been held accountable. Um, you know, the anti-Americanism in the region is uh, something to consider. 
the um, desire to exact um, revenge against us is something to consider when we formulate our Arab-Israeli policy. Um, John. 